Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I'm going to preach to you a message today I'm calling Fellowship Upside Down and Inside Out. This message is, is more than a message, to be honest with you. This burns in me. Um, this is probably the heart of my life in terms of pastoral ministry. But more so than that, it's something that God has been really burning in me that I think has a very prophetic edge for what this community could be 30, 40 years down the road. And that's how I feel like the Lord communicated it to me this week. And so I want to do nothing other than be faithful to how God has shared with me. And um, it's going to be a journey together, all right, as we look. I want us to talk in our time together today about a revelation. Now, that revelation is a clear, concise revelation. It's a revelation of Christ in his church. I'm of the opinion that in America, in the day that you and I live in, we are in desperate need of a revelation of Christ in his church. Now, we need that revelation in two ways. I didn't say a desperate need of uh, a revelation of Christ. I said of Christ in his church an epiphany of what Christ is in his church. And we, I think, need that in two ways. Number one, we need an awareness of it. We need to understand it. We need to have our imaginations stamped with a new awareness of what it means to talk about the church. When we say the word church, we need a new awareness of what that means. We need a new awareness, so we need to understand it. But secondly, we need to become that revelation. Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, needs to see dwelling place become an epiphany of the church. And let me say it this way. Our community needs to see uh, the church as an epiphany of, of Christ as his church. It needs to see our local bodies as Christ as his church. So I want to talk about that to you this morning. How many of you have ever read or heard of Dr. Oliver Sacks' story, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat? Anybody? Have you heard of this? The man who mistook his wife for a hat, Dr. Oliver Sacks. Dr. Oliver Sacks was a neurologist. I tend to have an affinity towards those type of people. That's what I wanted to be before I met Jesus. And, and he was a neurologist, a famous man. He gets a visit one day from a man he calls in his story Dr. P. Dr. P was not his real name, but in his story he was. He was a lifelong, Dr. P was a lifelong classical musician, an amazing man. He taught in a university later on in life to teach the next generation about musicianship. He was highly skilled, but in his life, there were a few things that were not quite right. Off a little bit. Off. It concerned his family, particularly his wife, certainly his children. And over a period of time, occasionally, he would walk down the street and he would see a fire hydrant in the grass and he would go over and pat it on the head and talk to it like it was a child. They started noticing some neurological malfunctions. They couldn't quite determine what was taking place, but something was out of sorts. Now, he seemed sane most of the day. But this would happen in flashes. He would be out of sorts. He comes to see Dr. Sachs. Dr. Sachs tells in his memoir, he said, when I first met him, he seemed so sane. I thought, there's nothing wrong with this man. I would never find anything wrong with this man. But then he said, I met with him over an hour, and I noticed that he began to look at me strangely. He said, I noticed that he wasn't looking at my face, but he was looking at parts of my face. He was looking at my eyes, and he would focus on my chin, and he would look at my ear, and He said, we got to do tests. So he started to do tests, and he realized how serious his problem really was. He said, the first test I did, I put him on the table. I took off his shoe and put it off to the side, and I grabbed a key. I ran that down the bottom of his foot to check his reflexes. His reflexes were fine. He responded the way he was to respond. 
he turned and looked at Dr. P, and he was going to go write some notes in his journal. He said, Dr. P, put your shoe back on, and he turned around to write notes in his journal. When he turned back around again, his shoe was still setting off to the side, and in, in an effort he thought he didn't hear him, he said, put your shoe back on, Dr. P, and he turned around to write in his journal. A few seconds passed, and he turned back around, and his shoe was still off, and he said, Dr. P, have you not heard me? Put your shoe back on. And Dr. P said, oh, I thought this was my shoe pointing at his foot, and that was my foot. And now Dr. Saxon is a bit confused, and so he said, all right, I'm going to show him a rose. So Dr. Saxon, in his book, tells him that he showed him a rose. And he said, Dr. P picked up the rose, and he felt it, and he said, oh, it's a convoluted red form with a green line coming out of it. He said, you're exactly right. But, but what is that convoluted red form with a green line coming out of it? And he said, I don't know. And he said, well, I need to touch it. And he touched it and he smelled it. Oh, it's a rose, Dr. P said. He showed him a glove. He gave Dr. P a glove. Dr. P said, I don't know what it is. He said, I need to feel it. He said, oh, well, it is, Dr. Sachs, a continuous surface folded in on itself with five outpouchings. What an amazing word. So what could it be? Dr. P said, oh, it's a container for five sets of coins. Dr. P said in one time, it was about his third meeting, he said, all right, Dr. Dr. Sachs said to Dr. P, he said, we're done for the day. To which he turns and Dr. P turns and he grabs his wife by the top of the head and lifts and says, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, babe. I thought you were my hat. The man who mistook his wife for a hat. Did you know that in this story, it's fascinating, go read it, it's amazing. He never discovered what was wrong with this man. He got it down to three areas. He thought it was biochemical, he thought it was number two, neurological, or he couldn't determine if it was psychological. But he came to the conclusion in his book, book, Dr. P was experiencing a failing in his judgment. I want to suggest to us today that we have a similar disorder when it comes to the church. We are mistaking fire hydrants for kids. We are mistaking feet for shoes. We're mistaking shoes for feet. And we're mistaking roses for convoluted forms of red that have green lines sticking out it when we talk about the church. And my proposal to you, you're going to have to follow me a minute, is that we are so much right in so many other areas of our life, we can't imagine that we are this wrong when it comes to our view of the church. We can't imagine that we are this disordered when it comes to how Jesus sees his church. But what if we are so disordered when it comes to our understanding of what it means to be the church that we can, let me, if we can do this, start by reading a clear official diagnosis and doctor report from Dr. Sachs on the diagnosis of Dr. P. Just a little bit. Here's what he said. His responses were very curious. His eyes, put it on the screens here, would dart from one thing to another, picking up features, individual features, as they had done with my face. A striking brightness, a color, a shape would arrest his attention and elicit comments. But in no case did Dr. P ever see the whole scene. Dr. P failed to see only the, he only saw the details which were spotted like blips on a radar screen. Dr. P 
never entered into relationship with the whole picture. This is American Christianity. He never entered into the whole relationship with the whole picture. What if the way we live our Christian life is that we only see blips? We see God's work so individualistically and so atomistically that we never get to see the whole big picture. We never see that God's work is not just about us, but it's actually about the community that we belong to. You remember the story in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus took him as far north as he ever took him in all of his earthly ministry. And he said, uh, who do people say that I am to be? What are people saying that I am? And they say, you're Jeremiah, you're resurrected, you're one of the prophets. And then he says to Peter, says, but who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are God's son. You are the son of the living God. You are Messiah. You are anointed one. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, this comes from my father. Everybody say revelation. This is revelation. No one can tell you that Jesus is God's son except the father. It takes revelation. And then Jesus right there launches in to tell them, all these disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the Sanhedrin, and he must die, and he must be crucified, and he must be beaten, and on the third day he will raise again. And Peter takes him to the aside, and he says, Oh, no, Mr. Jesus. No, you're not. That's not what happens to Messiahs. Notice what happened. He received a genuine revelation from God, but as soon as God speaks to us, we have to interpret it. Catch this, church. If our minds are not renewed, we pervert the genuine revelation of God no matter how authentic God's word to us is. No matter how clear God speaks to us, it doesn't matter because we have to interpret it. No matter how authentic the word from God you get is, I have to interpret it. And if my life is not renewed in his image, I will pervert what he speaks into my own image. I won't listen to what his words are in his image, but his words in my image. If I'm not made like him, I will take his word and make it like I expect it to be. So Peter takes the revelation, you are the Messiah, and he makes it, you are the Messiah I expect you to be. See, it's not a misrevelation, it's a misinterpretation of God's clear revelation because his mind's not renewed, his heart's not renewed. So Jesus said in the first case, what did he say? He said, I will build my church. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. On this rock, I will build my church. But what does he say in the second time? He says, hey, get behind me, Satan, because you have not in the things of mine or the things of God in mind, but the things of men. So catch this. What Jesus said to Peter is, you are a stumbling block to me. Peter went from being the foundation block of the church to a stumbling block in five verses who was inhibiting what Jesus wanted to do in building his church. Now listen to me. I suspect that we in America, that's exactly what we do. We think we know better than Peter did. We do. We think we know what we mean when we say you are the Christ, when we sing it to him. But if we don't understand what Jesus meant when he said, I will build my church, we still don't know what he means, or what, what he really means when he says, I am the Christ. I can't know what he means when he says, I am the Christ, if I don't know what he means when he said, I'll build my church. It's a convoluted, wrong perception of genuine revelation. I suspect that when Jesus says, I'll build my church, here's how we hear it in America. I suspect we hear it like this. I will make lots of individual Christians. I suspect when Jesus says, I'll build my church, we hear this. I will build ministries. 
But Jesus didn't say, I will build ministries. And Jesus didn't say, I will convert a lot of individuals to follow me to my Father. He said, I will build my church. And until we understand what he means when he says that, then like Peter, we will have a genuine revelation that we have distorted by our unsanctified imaginations, and we will become stumbling blocks to the very work we think we're cooperating with Jesus to build in our city. We actually become the stumbling blocks to what God's doing. This is what's at stake in this message in fellowship. This is what's a mistake here. And so listen, if we don't understand what is meant by the church, then we can't be the church. If we don't understand what true biblical fellowship is, we can't experience true biblical fellowship. And if I'm right, just consider me right for a minute. You can make your judgment at the end. If I'm right, if there's something disordered about us, about how we think about the church, that means we will misread scripture. Let me give you a few examples. Talking to my wife on the way here this morning. Let me just give you a couple, few examples. Do you realize that every scripture in your Bible, all 66 books, was written to communities? No, there wasn't. It was Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were written to individuals that were meant to be read publicly. There's not a scripture that we find in the Bible that is not writ, meant and inspired of the Spirit of God to be written and read within a community. Yet most of us have been trained to only read the Bible as a private practice. Something we do on our own. I'm to read the Bible in my own personal time, and that's to supplement the time I come together. Well, the inspiration of Scripture was for communities, and now we've made it about individuals. Don't mishear me. Don't mishear me. I did not say we shouldn't read the Bible. What I did say is that I find it odd that the Bible, which the Holy Spirit inspired, was written for communities, and we have restricted the use, and in America, we've made it about individual use. Then, all kinds of texts that speak plurally, we hear them individually. Can I give you the examples? You guys know second person plural. That's you all. Not you second person singular, but you all. Every one of these I'm going to read is you all. Listen to them. Romans chapter 12. We know it, but I suspect we've misread it all of our lives. I plead you, beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present, and our English translation says, your bodies as a living sacrifice. Incorrect in the Greek text. He says, I implore you, second person plural, to present your body, singular, a living sacrifice. Paul is not saying, I want each Roman to present your individual life as a sacrifice to the Lord. He's saying, I want all of you to get together and offer your life together as a community, as a sacrifice to God. Very clear in Scripture. I want all of us to be together to present our Life, Ephesians 6. Oh, we know this one in the Spirit-filled church. Put on the full armor of God. Did you know in Ephesians 6, I went through last night my interlinear Bible and read it again. There's not one single address to an individual Christian. Ephesians chapter 6, we know this text, put on the whole armor of Christ. But did you know that's not addressed to individual believers? Paul's not saying each of you wake up in the morning, rub your eyes, put on the helmet of salvation. No, he's saying there is one warrior, his name is Jesus. And what you are to do is you are together to put the armor on his body, and we are that body. There's not many helmets of salvation. There's one helmet of salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. And as one body, we wear the armor of Christ. Second person plural in the entire chapter, Ephesians chapter 6. But here's why we can't read it that way. You know why we can't read it that way? Because we've been trained to see all Scripture as applied individualistically. We've been trained fiercely individualistic. What about the Philippians? Remember this one? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, it can be applied personally, but it's not what it was written to. What it was written to, we hear that as 
Each one of us, I need to work out my own salvation. Meredith needs to work out her own salvation. That's not what the text says. The text says all of y'all together need to work out your shared salvation as a community. And the examples go on and on and on and on and on in Scripture. So like Dr. P, we are looking at our bare foot and calling it a shoe, and we're looking at our shoe and calling it a bare foot. But more tragically than misreading Scripture, we actually misread our lives and experiences. Now, here's where it's going to, you just got to follow me a minute, because this is what I see pastoring. We misunderstand God's will, and we think the whole goal of my life is to get closer to the Lord personally. So if this community isn't helping me do that, I got to find a community that feeds me because underneath all of this is the assumption, what assumption? That the church exists to serve each one of us. We think whether or not we want to put it in terms or not, whether we want to say it or not, we think and we've been trained in America to think of the church as a support group for our individual relationship with God. The church is a voluntary association that I can depend on when I need it, but I don't have to depend on it if I don't need it. Nothing can be further from the scriptures. Nothing can be further from the truth of God. I was on Facebook several years ago. Good friend of mine, he's a pastor. And he wrote on there a a post. And I saw a status as I was scrolling the feed with 172 comments. I should have known, church, I should have known. Do not click on the status. If you see a status with 172 comments and the picture is not a newborn baby, let me go ahead and tell you, that means someone's threatened to kill somebody else, okay? I should have known. Do not click on that status. And I did. And my pastor friend made a comment about the, happy birthday to you, brother Ron. Awesome to say you belong to this community, brother. Happy birthday to you. I saw, I saw this, this post, and this man, this friend of mine, he talks about the nature of church. And when he does, a girl, lady who has been hurt by the church, is one of the first few to comment, and she is pushing back against what he said in the church. She's been hurt. At which point, a third party, who's another pastor, rushed into the timeline and started destroying her idea of what the nature of the church really is, and 120-something comments later, these two, this woman and this other pastor, had eviscerated one another. They had destroyed one another, up one side, down, down the other side, and, and then this woman said this, oh my goodness, I'll never forget it, all I live. She said, all right, I'm done. This is the last comment, followed by 27 more comments from her, right? But she said, this is my last comment, and she said this. She said, all I know to say is this. I get closer to Jesus and further from the church every day. And as soon as I read that, I thought, in America, we think that that's possible. We don't think it's ideal, but we think it's possible. Can I tell you biblically? It is not possible. You cannot get closer to Jesus and further away from his church. Impossible scripturally. We think it's possible that our individual relationship is more important than our relationship to the community of which God has saved us into. We think that. We think that's possible. I mean, we think it's not the best option, but it is possible. There is no closer, there is no possible way to get closer to Jesus while getting further away from his church. Imagine if I called my wife today and I said, Honey, I adore you. I want to be, you, I want to be with you in this life and the life to come. I want to be with you eternally. I want you. I desire you, but you know what? I'd rather us not see one another. And I'd rather us not talk to each other. I don't want any more touch in our relationship. Let's not ever be in the same room together, but I love you. 
That's absurd. But did you know that's how absurd it is to say I get closer to Jesus and further from his body every day? Why do we not realize the absurdity of that? Because like Dr. P, we are diseased and disoriented and we can't tell our feet from our shoes. We can't tell clothes from fire hydrants. We are that disordered when it comes to the understanding of the church. We are that fiercely individualistic in America. We are that fiercely individualized. And what we're doing is we're taking Jesus aside and instructing on him about what he can do in our churches. We have enough confidence to prevent him from being who he wants to be in us. Just like Peter. But there is no relationship to Jesus that is not a relationship with his church. The early church fathers, the first 500 years of church history, here's what they said. They said, there is no salvation apart from the church. You know what else they said? It went in the Didache, the church teaching. They said, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. That's so foreign to us because we see the church as existing as scaffolding for the real work of God. So here's what we do. We think that the church helps us to get built, and once the build, build, building is built, we take out the scaffolding. We think it's the scaffolding that the real work of God is in us, and the church is somehow just the scaffolding. If you doubt me, I don't know if you can doubt me, but if you're doubting me still, let me give you another example. Here's another example. There was a huge church. If I said the name of the church, everybody would know the name of this church. It's been so sad what's happened in the news in the last few weeks. This church is one of the largest churches in all of America. A few years ago, they did a study. They published a book and a study, and they said, we do not like our results. We said, for 25 years of ministry, we have been gathering tons of tons of people, thousands upon thousands of people, and they said, we are not discipling our people. Kudos for them owning that, right? Here's what they did. They then said, we are going to, our people are coming to church, but they're not maturing in the faith. They're not becoming full believers, full mature believers. So they called a radical change in the way they do ministry, and they said, we're going to disciple other in, in a different way. But listen, the model that they adopted of discipleship, in my opinion, was worse than the problem they were trying to fix. Because the model of discipleship that they adopted was this. Here was its end goal. They said our end goal is to make every church member a self-feeder. Do you realize what's being said? The work of the church is to make you independent of it. The work of the church is we're trying to make you where you don't need us. The exact opposite is true of Scripture. The more mature I become, the more I need the church. Not I feed, oh yeah, you have to read scripture yourself, but it's not so that you're independent of God's people. It's not that you're a feeder that no longer needs the community of gathering, that no longer needs the fellowship of connect groups, that no longer needs to be intertwined with other individuals. And so you can do for yourself, that's what people think, but that's not the work of God and how the work of God actually plays out in our lives. He doesn't want us to become less and less me to become less and less dependent on you. He wants me to become more and more dependent on you. That's what a body is. Listen to me, church. The more mature I become, the more I move into the, the real root of holiness, I don't move further and further from community. I move deeper and deeper into the heart of community. Church, listen. Now, some of you, 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 you may be having a hard time because you, you're, you're misunderstanding what I think about the church or what I'm, what I'm calling the church. I'm, I'm not calling the church. The church is not a staging ground for ministries. If the church is a staging ground for ministries, what that means is people come to the staging ground, benefit from the ministries, and then go back to their own lives. That's not the church. The church is so much more than that. The church is more than a collection of ministries that are independent of one another. And then on the opposite side, here's how we mess up. 
Other people think that the church is a network of fulfilling relationships. So you get around some people and they say, we talk about the church like it's a place to go to to have real intimacy. So people, some people say, the, the church is so important because the church is a, the place where I have the depth of relationship. Well, that's good. Relationship's awesome, but the church is something else. What God is trying to build is not a place where I have a fulfilling relationship with you. Although I hope you have the most fulfilling relationships with anybody in your life within this church. That's not what God's doing. What God wants is a community where we can be shaped in his image together and reflect his image to the city around us. So that means by necessity, I need people in this church that are not like me. I need people that are not my skin color. I need people that challenge me. I need people that are rich, and we need a church that's poor. We need people that are strong, and we need people that are weak. We need people that are very high on the socioeconomic scale and very low on the socioeconomic scale. By very necessity of what the definition of a church is, is that we are different. And if we don't become different, we will mistake our reading for the gospel for the gospel itself. And you will spend your days talking to young people and older alike who say, us five go, went to the same seminary and we're of the same color and we grew up in the same side of the city and we're gonna meet together at Starbucks and we call that church. That's not church. That's friendship and it's important, but it's not church. Because when you leave that Starbucks, you'll be the same person you were when you walked in because you're around people who are just like you. See, this is the church. That, that dwelling place would be fit together and we would allow the Spirit of the Lord inclusively to bust out our walls so that we make space for people who are different than us who come from different life experiences, who have a different understanding of even sometimes reading the Scripture, of a different background. So what I want to do is I want to look at an epistle, and I want to look at a gospel, and I want us to see how these two texts hold in weight. Can we read two texts together? Let's look first at the epistle, 1 John chapter 4. Look what the Bible says about our role as a church, a role as fellowship, the role and anger value of what it really means to be together in Christ. Look at... 1 John 4, 18, he says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Wow, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, that Bible verse tells us there's no need to fear. Now, let's go to John 15. This is a gospel message, and this is Jesus speaking. And he said, I'm divine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he's, the bear, he's that that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, and he withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Folks, at the heart of the first John promise is that perfect love cast out fear. How many of you heard that your whole life? Perfect love cast out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with judgment, right? Fear has to mean that you're doing with judgment. Yet the gospel reading is filled with both threat and promise. He says those branches not bearing fruit, leave it up there, are cut off, judged, and thrown into the fire. Pauls, how can God be one who cuts off and destroys and yet tell us that perfect love casts out fear? This is an issue in Scripture. How can you hear Jesus say, if you're not bearing fruit, you're going to be thrown away and destroyed? And then he says in the gospel, the, the first John epistle reading, that perfect love casts out all fear. Let me say it this way. How can we have no fear if our God threatens us with judgment? Let me say it another way. How can we hear God's threats as God's promises? I think this is how we hold them together. You ready? We serve a God who prunes people so that they're more fruitful, and he cuts off people that are not fruitful. 
And even that is something we don't have to fear. You know why? Because these texts depend on how we live together. I believe the point of these texts is less about my relationship to God and more about my relationship to you and more about our relationship together. Most of us have heard this the other way around. We thought of the church as in service to our personal relationship with God. The church is to help that. We've been trained that what matters most and all that matters in our life is my relationship to God in Christ and my relationship to you helps my relationship with Christ, but insofar as it hinders me, I can break my relationship with you. Why? Because I have a relationship with God in Christ, and that defines me. That's how we've been taught. But the heart of this passage is the exact opposite. The truth is the other way around. What are you saying, Craig? There is no relationship to God in Christ that doesn't look like a relationship with you. The way we say that is a loving God looks a lot like loving people. There's no way. There's no relationship to God in Christ that doesn't look like a relationship to other believers. To be bound with him is to be inseparably bound to you, to be tangled up in your life. Let me say it this way. If I'm cut off from the vine, I'm not only cut off from him, I'm cut off from you. Let me say it anyway. If I abide in the vine, I'm entangled in the branches. Branches are entangled, and there's no cutting away from him that is also not a breaking off from you. And if I abide in the vine, I remain entangled in you. (laughs) I can tell you're as shocked as I am in understanding Scripture, right? Truly, with fellowship. I'm entangled with you. What this means is if I'm in Jesus, I remain caught up in the branches. Caught up. So to be a Christian then, according to 1 John 15, is not just to make a claim about Christ. It's to make a claim about a relationship with the people of Christ. The people of God. When you say I'm in Christ, the first thing you're saying, we teach it in foundation. What's the first baptism? Baptism into Christ. By very nature, you now have brothers and sisters. There's no such thing as a solitary individual Christian. Again, I think we get exactly backwards. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. Remember our love passage? We read it. Weddings. It has nothing to do with weddings. Remember this one? 1 Corinthians 13. Look what, look, let's read it together. Look at verse 1. We read it all the time. Notice all that's listed here is a description of a life that's filled with the power of God. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith and I cast mountains down and be thou removed as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. What is he describing? He's describing, if I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. He is describing for us very clearly a life filled with the power of God. These are saints and prophets that have this kind of power. They have prophetic powers. They can understand all mysteries. They're filled with faith. Yet Paul says this means nothing if you don't live with one another lovingly. And then he describes the nature of love. And listen to how common and pedestrian love is compared to prophetic powers. Listen to how mundane it is. Ready? And, and, and Paul's trying to do something here for us. He's trying to juxtapose two. Now listen to, listen to how mundane this is. He goes on, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Time out. Everything he described about love right there 
has nothing to do with my relationship with God. I don't need to be patient with God. He's God. I don't need to be kind with God. He's God. I need to be patient with you, and you need to be patient with me, and I need to be kind to you, and you need to be kind to me. This has nothing to do with our relationship with God and everything to do with our relationship together. Everything connected as one body, loving one another, engaging one another. And everything Paul lists here is about our mutual relationship in Christ. Look at he goes on to verse 6. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. I know it's so counterintuitive, but listen to me, church. The most important part of your life with God is your life with other believers and those who do not believe. And if you think you can get that wrong and be right with God, you are wrong. You're wrong. There's no other way to read scripture. So what defines your faithfulness in the body of Christ and following Christ is not your prophetic powers. It's not that you understand all mysteries. It's not that you have faith to go from glory to glory. But it's living day to day, face to face, shoulder to shoulder with people that are just like you and not resenting them for being just like you. What defines the Christian life as faithful is our ability to stomach each other long enough for God to perform his work in us. It's to stay close enough together to each other that the vine's life, Jesus, can spread through the branches as we get entangled with one another. That's faithfulness. The fruit we're called to bear is the fruit of life together. Not prophetic power, not mysterious insight, and not faith that moves mountains. So to be a faithful Christian is mostly about living in company with other Christians who are more or less faithful than I am. That's fellowship. Now that should be encouraging to you, but it may not be. But let's go back to the text just a moment. First John chapter four. Let's see how this holds together for John. Verse seven, he said, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves God is of God and knows God. And whoever does not love God does not know God for God is love. For God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Look at this next verse. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Everybody look at the screen. Just look right here. Verse 11. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. We have heard it the other way around our whole lives. Because God loves us so much, we should reciprocate that love and love him back with the same amount of love. That is not what the Bible says. Because he loves us so much, let us stomach one another. Because he loves us, when you know the love of God, you can't walk away from your brothers and sisters. When you really know God's love, my God, this this burns in me for you. When you really know his love, you have no capacity to break fellowship with other believers. You love one another. You are knit together in relationship with God. God has loved you so much. 
You should tolerate one another. You should stomach one another. If you know how much God loves you, you can never walk away from those people who are around you. And this is what we miss. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. Notice how striking that line is. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. Let me let me say it another way. No one has ever seen God unless we live with one another in such a way that God is revealed to our cities. Jesus says this is how, John 17, the high priestly prayer, he's before his father. He says this is how people would know you are mine, by your personal devotion to me. No. By how you love one another. How do we make God known in America? Not by our personal devotion to Christ. Not by our prophetic powers. Not by our ability to interpret all prophecies. Not by our ability to cast aside mountains. We make God known in the world by the way we love one another. The way we love each other. This is why Satan is behind all of the division and polarization of our nation. If the world sees a divided church, how would it ever be one? God is manifested in our ability to stay together for life. Over all the difficulties, through all the challenges of life, through all of whatever difficulties come our way, I am called to love you. And when I do that, the text says God's love, put it back up there, is perfected in us. We have been taught the opposite. We've been taught to pursue Christ for a personal relationship and let his love cast out fear. But the Bible says the opposite. It's when you are in community loving one another that that love is made perfect in you and cast out all fear from the community. This is how I live my life, by the way, as a pastoral counselor trying to get the fear gone from people who don't take brotherly and sisterly love seriously. It's impossible. Let me say it this way. We thought we could pursue a relationship with God and then we would be able to eventually find a way to live with each other. But 1 John 4 is the opposite. The only way you have confidence with God that drives out fear is you, if you live with one another long enough for God's love to be perfected in you. It's only as we live long enough together over time through seasons, through difficulties, through challenges, through triumphs, through failures, through sin, through wins and victories, only as we live long enough can God's love be perfected strongly enough in our community and that love drives out fear. Listen, I learned not to fear God by loving you and letting you love me. The more I realize your life and my life are bound up together, the more I realize God will not cut himself off from me because I'm bound to you. Listen, people always worried about assurance of salvation, doubt. This is the key. The moment I realize that your salvation matters more than mine, I can never fear God again. I can never fear God again. Because the moment I realize my life is more about your salvation than it is my salvation, I have no need to fear God because what matters is not what happens to me. What matters is what happens to you. What happens to your life. And any spirituality that creates an anxiety in me about my relationship to God is a spirituality that doesn't understand the need for brotherly and sisterly love. People who are anxious about their relationship with God are people who've never moved deep enough into the relationship with the people of God. It's commitment. And God has called me to his family because he's radically in love with you. And I am his care for you. 
Now, some of you may not like that, but this is what you get. God didn't save me for me. He saved me for you. <laughs> he doesn't save you for you. He saves you for others. Oh, there's no fear anymore. I have no fear of God whatsoever. When I know I don't think about me, I think about you. If you find yourself afraid of God, it's because you haven't lived deeply enough with your brothers and sisters yet. If you find yourself afraid of God that he might cut you off, it's because you're still thinking about your relationship with God instead of her relationship with God and his relationship with God. But if you can turn that upside down and inside out, that's the title of my message, upside down and inside out, upside down and inside out, what you'll find is you'll realize if your prayers are first for them, that your fasting this weekend is first for them and not you. If your study in the Bible every morning is first for them and not for you, then you realize you have no need to fear God because what's happening in you is the life of God is taking place in you. Because who is Christ except one who did not think about himself but thought about everybody else? Christ thinks nothing of himself. He thinks only of you, and yet he reveals the nature of God. Therefore, the most faithful believer is the believer who never thinks about his own salvation or her own salvation, but only thinks about the people's salvation around them. How do I know you're growing in Christ? You stop thinking about you. You start thinking about other salvations. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you two stories, and I'll close. Both come from the book of Acts. The first one's Acts chapter 8. It's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Fascinating story. First, real strong evangelism story, but let's see how God reaches this man. Acts 8, 26 through 35, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south toward the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a wilderness road. Thank you, Luke, for telling us it's a wilderness road because normally when God speaks to us, it, it actually takes us straight to the wilderness road. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So when we obey, we go straight into the wilderness. And, and this, is, this is what Luke tells us. Now, here, here's what's so amazing. He got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Keep going. And he was returning home, seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of the said, said to Philip, go over to this chair and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. I don't, I don't know what I'm reading. And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him in the chariot. Oh, my goodness. Look at this church. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a, slam a lamb silent before its shear, he did not open his mouth. Who? Jesus. In his humiliation, justice denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Look at verse 33. Then the eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask? You? Does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news of Jesus. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. This is what it looks like to live in community over time for the rest of your life. Sometimes we need to be Philip. Sometimes we need to be the eunuch. What do you mean? Notice first what Philip does. He hears from God and he has a commission, but God doesn't tell him fully what it is. One of the most annoying things about our God is he always gives you less information than you need. He never reveals his will fully. He always gives it to you bit at a time, line at a time. Get up, go to the wilderness. And Philip goes. This is a model for how God leads us. He doesn't say, I have this destiny for you, dwelling place. He doesn't say, I have this future for you individually, and here's how I will lead you to it. He simply says, do this, and often that this leads right into the wilderness. But Philip went, and he encounters the eunuch who's reading 
Isaiah. And Philip hears the Lord say, go up to this man, and he complies. What is Philip doing? He's just living instinct to instinct. Moment by moment. When I talk to people about what God's got for your future, what God's got next, well, I don't know. Well, I'm sorry. You're not going to do anything or move anywhere until you know what's next. That's not the way God works. How could he work? It's just instinct and sick. God said to go this, so he went to this. I'm going to ask a question. He says, do you understand? Eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? But what is striking is the juxtaposition between what the man's reading and what Philip is to do. The passage he's reading in Isaiah is where Jesus is like a sheep who opens not his mouth, and the first thing Philip does is open his mouth and say, this is Jesus. Because here's the thing about our God. He remains silent so we can speak for him. I wish he didn't. I would rather hear him speak than you, and you would rather hear him speak than me. But at the heart of Jesus' work in our life is to force us so that we need each other. So when we want him to speak, he will not open his mouth so that Philip has to open his mouth because God doesn't want a relationship with Philip and God doesn't want a relationship with the eunuch. God wants Philip and the eunuch to be brothers. To be connected. To be engaged. This is the hard truth. You ready? To live in a community for the long time is to live with a God who is silent because he's making room for people to speak to us. And yes, he does speak to us. You know, if you just take this message today, you're going to get way out of kilter. you got to look at this in the context of all the other messages we preach. But there are times in your life where God will be silent and will speak to you through other voices. And the question is, will you learn? Will you be teachable? Will you hear your leader say, this is the Lord's will, and you accept it? It's the truth. It comes It's hard. It's challenging. And so many of us are praying for God to speak. And God is not going to speak except through the mouths of those around us that he means to send to us for our good. We're praying for something to happen that will not happen. He opens not his mouth, so Philip has to open his mouth. But when he opens his mouth, what does he speak about? Jesus. Philip doesn't speak about Philip. Philip speaks about Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his beautiful book called Life Together, here's what he said. He said, at the heart of Christian ministry is the ministry of holding our tongue when it's time to be silent and speaking the gospel when it's time to be heard. The secret to living in community is knowing when to keep your mouth shut and your fingers steal, and when to speak, and when to type. That's the secret of Christian community, knowing when the moment has come for you to speak, and knowing when the moment has come for you to say nothing, and getting that out of rhythm is totally destructive for people. You don't believe me? When you speak when you should be silent, it doesn't matter what you say. When you speak when you are supposed to be silent, even the truth is destructive. How many times we have this conversation, babe, in our house? And if, if she says, well, that's the truth, it doesn't matter. If that's the truth and she's speaking to me in a time that it's not time for her to speak, she's like Peter cutting my ear off and then expecting me to hear. We cut people's ear off when we speak to them when the truth is not supposed to be spoke to them in that time. And we think we're speaking the truth and they should hear it, but we cut their ear off. The ministry of Satan is speaking the truth when you shouldn't talk. That's Satan in Scripture. The the, the secret of Christian community is shutting our mouths when we don't need to talk and speaking when we do need to talk and knowing the difference to be led by the Spirit is to be a person who knows when to do either. That's Spirit-filled living. If If I speak when I should, if I don't speak when I should, then I leave you in condemnation and discouragement. Here's what's amazing. Philip got it right. But Philip's not the hero of the story. You know the hero of the story to me? It's the eunuch. It's the eunuch. You know why it's the eunuch? I'll close with this eunuch. 
He is an Ethiopian eunuch. Whoever's playing keys, Ethiopian Casey, Ethiopian eunuch. You know what that means? Focus in right here, church. He is a Gentile who is a eunuch. And where has he been? Jerusalem to worship, which is astonishing because Israel's law forbids Gentiles or eunuchs coming into the house of God. And here is a man who is a Gentile eunuch and shows up anyway. Oh, you listen to me, church. You listen to me. You want to live in a community for a lifetime? It's about having the guts it takes. Just think for a minute. The guts it takes to be a Gentile eunuch and show up in Jerusalem to worship. He is a double outsider, double entendre, broken the boundaries in two ways, and yet he shows up and God doesn't show up for him. Here's the second most annoying thing about our God. He never meets you where you think he'll meet you. He never meets you where you think it'll be. You know what life is about? He comes from Ethiopia to Jerusalem looking for something, but it doesn't happen. Jesus didn't meet him there. But now he's on his way home. He's still reading Isaiah, which he doesn't understand. And listen, this is roughly 97% of the Christian life. It's going to find God in places and not find him there. And then going reading texts at home that you don't understand. And then finally one day encountering the people God meant to send to you and your life changes. This is Christianity. Because God wants us together. And the only thing that would keep you in this life is being stubborn enough to keep reading text you don't understand and showing up where God hasn't spoken to you before and you keep doing it. The eunuch is stubborn enough to keep doing it and humble enough to accept the teaching when it comes because just as hard as it is to know when to speak and when to shut up, it's even harder to know when to listen. And this eunuch says, it's my time to listen. And he listens to Philip. And he says, how can I understand, Philip? He doesn't know his name, Philip. Maybe he did. How can I understand? I can't understand this. Show me, guide me. This is the secret to abiding in fellowship. This is the secret to abiding in long-term community. Here it is. Can you listen to people or not? Can anybody teach you anything? I love the story of Thomas, right? Jesus shows up. Who's not there? Thomas. You're talking about being discouraged. You're talking about being depressed and disappointed. Thomas is not there, but the very next week, guess who shows up? Thomas shows up anyways. Again, for most of us, the Christian life is hearing about other people saying how amazing God is in their life, but he didn't like that for me, and I show up anyways. That's Christianity. Hearing about everybody else talk about God's goodness in their families, and yet he's not in my family, and I keep showing up. I keep putting my body where he is supposed to show up. I keep arriving. I keep being present time and time again. Again, for most of us, it's showing up to church on a Sunday morning in spite of the fact that God doesn't speak to me 24-7 like he does to everyone else. Some people, God speaks to them all the time. He speaks to them every night and every dream. He tells them when to eat. He tells them when to get in their car. He tells them when to get an oil change. You ever listen to these people? And sometimes I'm like, has God ever spoken to me? But still, if that's you, show up. Because if you need that speaking from God, he will be faithful to give it to that. But show up because it's about you and me and about what he's doing between us. So we keep showing up. Who cares if they have prophetic powers? Keep showing up because what matters is that we love one another. What God cares about is that you are there when I need you. Not that you understand the book of Revelation and have a great end time impressive chart. It's about when I lose my family members, you show up at my house and cook me food while I'm grieving. 
that's what matters to God. That you show up on Sunday morning so others can see you even though your week has been annihilatingly bad. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about putting your body. I'm not talking about the body. I'm talking about your body. This thing you live in, it's about putting your body in a place of faithfulness over and over and over and over and over again for the sake of other people. You don't say, oh, I'm not needed. You don't say, oh, it's not a, a, a reason why I'm not there today. No, it's putting your body in a place of faithfulness so that God can use your body in that place of faithfulness to transform others. That's why your attendance matters. That's why your connect group engagement matters. Oh, yes, it matters. It matters. You want to know what will make the difference in this community 20 or 30 years from now? The difference between this community being a community of individuals who are pursuing an individual relationship with God or being a community in Woodstock that lasts across generations and touches Knox and Marley and Harper's children is how many people in this church do we have like that who won't stop showing up? I don't care how many prophetic mysteries we understand. I don't care. I don't care what capacity we think we have to cast aside mountains. I'm talking about people who show up even when God, you feel like, is not going to speak to you. Even when you realize, you know what, I'm not going to experience the miracle and what it is for me. But it's not for me. I'm showing up for you. I'm showing up to serve you. To be faithful to this body. Last story, Ananias and Sapphira. I told you I'd give you two stories. I gave you the last one. Remember what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? Come on. I was thinking this week, it just so bugged me because I was thinking about the threat of being cut off and the fear of judgment. You know the story, don't you? I don't want to read it. Man and woman, they get the cool plan. Wasn't really cool, was it? They devise a scheme. All the people are going and selling their properties and taking the money and throwing it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira say, here's our scheme. We're going to sell our property and keep some of the money for ourselves and then lie about the money we received and say we gave all to the community. This is hard to stick with me. Ananias comes first. He gives his money to Peter. And he dies on the ground. He dies. And Peter says to him, you've conspired in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. A few hours later, Sapphira comes and she dies. And in both cases, what's happening, church? What's happening is the attempt to leave the community with an impression about their spirituality that is not true. ourselves to a community in ways that are not true about us. It's not true about who we really are. There's nothing worse than people who pretend to be holier than they are. Because in terms of what happens in a community, imagine what happens in a community where everyone feels pressure to present themselves as having a better relationship with God than what they do. That's not community. That's Sunday morning attendance. What happens to me when you present yourself better than you are is I can't be myself with you. So either I put on a front or I leave the church. And this is our stance. When you don't become and present who you really are, I can't be myself with you. And community is the refusal to do this. To be open. And I don't know about you. I'm stepping on my own toes because the Lord has just really challenged me. Y'all, 
I've spent a lot of my Christian journey trying to present myself in ways that were not true because I wanted people to misread me because the way they were misreading me, I liked it. Y'all, y'all never, you never done that? You, you never done that? You never liked what people were saying about you and maybe ways that were untrue, but you liked it so you didn't stop it? You know why we do that? We present ourselves in ways that are not true because we want people to misread us because we think and don't trust that if they saw us for who we are, they could love us. And we don't believe that in our marriages and we don't believe that in our families. We certainly don't believe that in our churches. But here is the wisdom. The moment I can be myself with you, the moment I don't fear your judgment, I no longer fear his judgment. The moment I'm willing to say, this is who I am and let you see that, then I can let him see that. You wanna know how we reach the city of Woodstock? It's when we love people even in the midst of them presenting who they really are because if they cannot get judgment from us, they'll have no fear of getting judgment from him. But when they get judgment from the church, they know they're getting judgment or think they're getting judgment from him. So the more I'm able to present myself to you in the way that I really am and you love me in it, the more God builds a community. So Craig, how do I get in that community? One of the biggest ways for us is fellowship, connect groups. We have these out in the lobby, next steps table. It's an anchor value for us, fellowship. Happens first and third Sunday nights of the month. Some of them happen on Tuesday nights with prayer meeting. Others of them happen on Saturday morning. But there's a way for you to engage fellowship. You want your life to be different in September of 2019? Take this message to heart. Let the Holy Spirit align and say, where, where do I need to really commit? Where do I really need to engage? And when you do, I promise you, what does Ephesians 4 say? Pastor Chad and I are called to equip the people, the people of God for work of ministry until we reach unity in the faith. It's us reaching unity in the faith. I have been taught all my life that the end goal of Christianity is that I am strong in Christ and not taught that I'm actually strong in Christ for the end goal of us reaching maturity in Christ. So the church is not meant to serve me reaching maturity. It's me in the church uh, calling us coming together to reach us unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God attaining to the full measure of the statue of Christ. It's us. It's fellowship. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.